Hey, this is one of my favorite chapters. This is chapter three, reading, um, and it's all in one episode. So you get to experience it all in one sitting. Um, Henry talks a lot about um, his ancient Greek and Latin influences. Um, He talks about how cool books are. Um, And in the end, he's like, every town should have this continuing education at a really high level. Um, And I really love that idea. And I feel like that's kind of what podcasts do. So come give a listen. Chapter three, reading. With a little more deliberation in the choice of their pursuits, all men would perhaps become essentially students and observers, for certainly their nature and destiny are interesting to all alike. In accumulating property for ourselves or our posterity, in founding a family or a state, or acquiring fame even, we are mortal. But in dealing with truth, we are immortal and need fear no change nor accident. The oldest Egyptian or Hindu philosopher raised a corner of the veil from the statue of the divinity, and still the trembling robe remains raised, and I gaze upon as fresh a glory as he did, since it was I in him that was then so bold, and it is he in me that now reviews the vision. No dust has settled on that robe, no time has elapsed since that divinity was revealed, That time, which we really improve, or which is improvable, is neither past, present, nor future. My residence was more favorable, not only to thought, but to serious reading, than a university, and, though I was beyond the range of the ordinary circulating library, I had more than ever come within the influence of those books which circulate round the world, whose sentences were first written on bark and are now merely copied from time to time onto linen paper. Says the poet Mir Kamar Udin Mast, being seated to run through the region of the spiritual world, I have had this advantage in books. To be intoxicated by a single glass of wine, I have experienced this pleasure when I have drunk the liquor of the esoteric doctrines. I keep Homer's Iliad on my table through the summer, though I looked at his page only now and then. Incessant labor with my hands at first, for I had my house to finish and my beans to hoe at the same time, made more study impossible. Yet I sustained myself by the prospect of such reading in future. I read one or two shallow books of travel in the intervals, in the intervals of my work, till that employment made me ashamed of myself, and I asked where it was then that I lived. The student may read Homer or Aeschylus in the Greek without danger of dissipation or luxuriousness, for it implies that he in some measure emulates their heroes and consecrate morning hours to their pages. The heroic books, even if printed in the character of our mother tongue, will always be in a language dead to degenerate times, and we must laboriously seek the meaning of each word and line, conjecturing a larger sense than common use permits, out of what wisdom and valor and generosity we have. The modern cheap and fertile press, with all its translations, has done little to bring us nearer to the heroic writers of antiquity. They seem as solitary, and the letter in which they are printed as rare and curious as ever. 
It is worth the expense of youthful days and costly hours if you learn only some words of an ancient language, which are raised out of the trivialness of the street, to be perpetual suggestions and provocations. It is not in vain that the farmer remembers and repeats the few Latin words which he has heard. Men sometimes speak as if the study of the classics would at length make way for more modern and practical studies. But the adventurous student will always study classics, in whatever language they may be written, and however ancient they may be. For what are the classics but the noblest recorded thoughts of man? They are the only oracles which are not decayed, and there are such answers to the most modern inquiry in them as Delphi and Dodona never gave. We might well and we might as well omit to study nature because she is old. To read well, that is, to read true books in a true spirit, is a noble exercise, and one that will task the reader more than any exercise which the customs of the day esteem. It requires a training such as the athletes underwent, the steady intention almost of the whole life to this object. Books must be read as deliberately and reservedly as they were written, it is not enough even to be able to speak the language of the nation by which they were written, for there is a memorable interval between the spoken and the written language, the language heard and the language read. The one is commonly transitory, a sound, a tongue, a dialect merely, almost brutish, and we learn it unconsciously, like the brutes of our mothers. The other is that the maturity and experience of that, if that is our mother tongue, this is our father tongue, a reserved and select expression, too significant to be heard by the ear, which we must be born again in order to speak. The crowds of men who merely spoke the Greek and Latin tongues in the Middle Ages were not entitled by the accident of birth, birth to read the works of genius written in those languages, for these were not written in that Greek or Latin which they knew, but in the select language of literature." They had not learned the nobler dialects of Greece and Rome, but the very materials on which they were written were waste paper to them, and they prized instead a cheap contemporary literature. But when the several nations of Europe had, had acquired distinct enough rude written languages of their own, sufficient for the purposes of their rising literatures, then first learning revived, and scholars were enabled to discern from that remoteness the treasures of antiquity." What the, Greek, the Roman and Grecian multitude could not hear after the, last, the lapse of ages a few scholars read, and a few scholars only are still reading it. However much we may admire the orator's occasional bursts of eloquence, the noblest written words are commonly as far behind or above the fleeting spoken language as the firmament with its stars is behind the clouds. There are the stars, and they who can may read them. The astronomers forever comment on and observe them. They are not exhalations like our daily colloquies and vaporous breath. What is called eloquence in the form is commonly found to be the rhetoric in the study. The orator yields to the inspiration of a transient occasion and speaks to the mob before him, to those who can hear him. But the writer, whose more equable life is his occasion, and who would be distracted by the event in the crowd which inspire the orator, speaks to the intellect and heart of mankind, to all in any age who can understand him. No wonder that Alexander carried the Iliad with him on his expeditions in a precious casket. A written word is the choicest of relics. 
It is something at once more intimate with us and more universal than any other works of art. It is the work of art nearest to life itself. It may be translated into every language and not only to be read, but actually breathed from all human lips, not to be represented on canvas or in marble only, but to be carved out of the breath of life itself. The symbol of an ancient man's thought becomes a modern man's speech. 2,000 summers have imparted to the monuments of Grecian literature, as to her marbles, only a maturer golden and autumnal tint, for they have carried their own serene and celestial atmosphere into all lands to protect them against the corrosion of time. Books are the treasured wealth of the world and the fit inheritance of generations and nations. Books, the oldest and the best, stand naturally and rightfully on the shelves of every cottage. They have no cause of their own to plead, but while they enlighten and sustain the reader, his common sense will not refuse them. Their authors are a natural and irresistible aristocracy in every society, and, more than kings or emperors, exert an influence on mankind. When the illiterate and perhaps scornful trader has learned by enterprise and industry his coveted leisure and independence and, in, as, and is admitted to the circles of wealth and fashion, he turns inevitably at last to those still higher but yet inaccessible circles of intellect and genius and is sensible only of the imperfection of his culture and the vanity and insufficiency of all his riches and further proves his good sense by the pains which he takes to secure for his children that intellectual culture whose want he so keenly feels, and thus it is that he becomes the founder of a family. Those who have not learned to read the ancient classics in the language in which they were written must have a very imperfect knowledge of the history of the human race. For it is remarkable that no transcript of them has ever been made into any modern tongue, unless our civilization itself may be regarded as such a transcript. Homer has yet never yet been printed in English, nor Aeschylus, nor Virgil even, works as refined, as solidly done, and as beautiful almost as the morning itself, for later writers, say what we will of their genius, have rarely, if ever, equaled the elaborate beauty and finish and the lifelong and heroic literary labors of the ancients. They only talk of forgetting them who never knew them. It will be soon enough to forget them when we have the learning and the genius which will enable us to attend to and appreciate them. That age will be rich indeed when those relics, which we shall call classics, and the still older and more than classic but even less known scriptures of the nations, shall have still further accumulated. When the Vatican shall be filled with Vedas and Zenda Vestas and Bibles, with Homers and Dantes and Shakespeare's, and all the centuries to come shall have successively, shall have successively deposited their trophies in the forum of the world. By such a pile we may hope to scale heaven at last. The works of the great poets have never yet been read by mankind, for only great poets can read them. They have only been read as the multitude read the stars, at most astrologically, not astronomically. Most men have learned to read to serve a paltry convenience, as they have learned to cipher in order to keep accounts and not be cheated in trade, 
but of reading as a noble intellectual exercise they know little or nothing yet this only is reading in a high sense not that which lulls us as a luxury and suffers the noble nobler faculties to sleep the while but what we have to stand on tiptoe to read and devote our most alert and wakeful hours to I think that having learned our letters, we should read the best that is in literature and not be forever repeating our ABABs and words of one syllable in the fourth or fifth classes, sitting on the lowest and foremost forms of all our lives. Most men are satisfied if they read or hear read and perchance have been convicted by the wisdom of one good book, the Bible, and for the rest of their lives vegetate and dissipate their faculties in what is called easy reading. There is a work in several volumes in our circulating library entitled Little Reading, which I thought referred to a town of that name which I had not been to, Little Reading. There are those who, like cormorants and ostriches, can digest all sorts of this, even after the fullest dinner of meats and vegetables, for they suffer nothing to be wasted. If others are the machines to provide this provender, they are the machines to read it. They read the 9,000th tale about Zebulon and Sephronia and how they loved as none had ever loved before, and neither did the course of their true love run smooth, at any rate, how it did run and stumble and get up again and go on, how some poor unfortunate got up on a steeple who had better never have gone up as far as the belfry, and then having needlessly got him up there, the happy novelist rings the bell for all the world to come together and hear, oh dear, how how he did get down again. For my part, I think they had better metamorphose all such aspiring heroes of universal noveldom into man weathercocks, as they used to put heroes among the constellations, and let them swing round there till they are rusty, and not come down at all to bother honest men with their pranks. The next time the novelist rings the bell, I will not stir, though the meeting house burn down. The Skip of the Tiptoe Hop, a romance of the Middle Ages by the celebrated author of Little Toltan, to appear in monthly parts. A great rush. Don't all come together. All this they read with saucer eyes and erect and primitive curiosity and with unwearied gizzard, whose corrugations even yet need no sharpening. Just as some little four-year-old bencher on his two-cent gilt-covered edition of Cinderella without any improvement that I can see in the pronunciation or accent or emphasis or any more skill in extracting or inserting the moral. The result is dullness of sight, a stagnation of the vital circulations and a general deliquium and sloughing off of all the intellectual faculties. This sort of gingerbread is baked daily and more seditiously than pure wheat or rye and Indian in almost every oven and finds a surer market. The best books are are not read even by those who are called good readers. What does our conquered culture amount to? There is in this town, with a very few exceptions, no taste for the best or for very good books, even in English literature, whose words all can read and spell. Even the college-bred and so-called liberally educated men here and elsewhere have really little or no acquaintance with the English classics, and as for the recorded wisdom of mankind, the ancient classics and Bibles, which are accessible to all who will know of them, there are the feeblest efforts anywhere made to become acquainted with them. I know a woodchopper of middle age who takes a French paper, not for news as he says, for he is above that, but to keep himself in practice he being a Canadian by birth. 
And when I ask him what he considers the best thing he can do in this world, he says, besides this, to keep up and add to his English. This is about as much as the college-bred generally do or aspire to do, and they take an English paper for the purpose. One who's just come from reading perhaps one of the best English books will find how many with whom he can converse about it. Or suppose he comes from reading a Greek or Latin classic in the original, whose praises are familiar even to the so-called illiterate. He will find nobody at all to speak to, but he must keep silence about it. Indeed, there is hardly the professor in our colleges who, if he has mastered the difficulties of the language, has proportionately mastered the difficulties of the wit and poetry of a Greek poet, and has any sympathy to impart to the alert and heroic reader. And as for the sacred scriptures, or Bibles of mankind, who in this town can tell me even their titles? Most men do not know that any nation but the Hebrews have had a scripture. A man, any man, will go considerably out of his way to pick up a silver dollar. But here are golden words, which the wisest men of antiquity have uttered, and whose worth the wise of every succeeding age have assured us of. And yet we learn to read only as far as easy reading, the primers and class books, and when we leave school, the little reading and story books, which are for boys and beginners, and our reading, our conversation and thinking are all at a very low level, worthy only of pygmies and mannequins. I aspire to be acquainted with the wiser men than this our conquered soil has produced, whose names are hardly known here. Or shall I hear the name of Plato and never read his book? As if Plato were my townsman and I never saw him, my next neighbor, and I never heard him speak or attended to the wisdom of his words. But how actually is it? His dialogues, which contain what was immortal in him, lie on the next shelf, and yet I never read them. We are underbred and low-lived and illiterate. And in this respect, I confess, I do not make any very broad distinction between the illiterateness of my townsmen who cannot read at all and the illiterateness of him who has learned to read only what is for children and feeble intellects. We should be as good as the worthies of antiquity, but partly by first knowing how good they were. We are a race of titmen and soar but little higher in our intellectual flights than the columns of the daily paper. It is not all books that are as dull as their readers. There are probably words addressed to our conditions exactly, which, if we could really hear and understand, would be more salutary than the morning or the spring of our lives, and possibly put a new aspect on the face of things for us. How many a man has dated a new era in his life from the reading of a book. The book exists for us perchance, which will explain our miracles and reveal new ones. The at present unutterable things we may find somewhere uttered. These same questions that disturb and puzzle and confound us have in their turn occurred to all the wise men. Not one has been omitted, and each has answered them according to his ability by his words and his life. Moreover, with wisdom, we shall learn liberality. The solitary hired man on a farm in the outskirts of Concord, who has had his second birth and peculiar religious experience, and is driven, as he believes, into silent gravity and exclusiveness by his faith, may think it is not true. But Zoroaster, thousands of years ago, traveled the same road and had the same experience, 
but he, being wise, knew it to be universal, and treated his neighbors accordingly, and it is even said to have invented and established worship among men. Let him humbly commune with Zoroaster then, and through the liberalizing influence of all the worthies, with Jesus Christ himself, and let our church go by the board. We boast that we belong to the 19th century and are making the most rapid strides of any nation. But consider how little this village does for its own culture. I do not wish to flatter my townsmen, nor to be flattered by them, for that will not advance either of us. We need to be provoked, goaded like oxen as we are, into a trot. We have a comparatively decent system of common schools, schools for infants only, but excepting the half-starved lyceum in the winter and latterly the puny beginning of a library suggested by the state, no school for ourselves. We spend more on almost any article of bodily ailment or ailment than than on our mental ailment. It is time that we had uncommon schools, that we, not, that we did not leave off our education when we began to be men and women. It is time that villages were universities, and their elder inhabitants the fellows of universities, with leisure, if they are indeed so well off, to pursue liberal studies the rest of their lives. Shall the world be confined to one Paris or one Oxford forever? Cannot students be boarded here and get a liberal education under the skies of Concord? Can we not hire some Abelard to lecture to us? Alas, what with foddering the cattle and tending the store, we are kept from school too long, and our education is sadly neglected. In this country, the village should, in some respects, take the place of the noblemen of Europe. It should be the patron of the fine arts. It is rich enough. It wants only the magnanimity magnanimity and refinement. It can spend money enough on such things as farmers and traders value, but it is thought utopian to propose spending money for things which more intelligent men know to be of far more worth. This town has spent $17,000 on a townhouse, thank fortune or politics, but probably will not spend so much on living wit, the true meat to put into that shell in a hundred years. The $125 annually subscribed for a lyceum in the winter is better spent than any other equal sum raised in the town. If we live in the 19th century, why should we not enjoy the advantages which the 19th century offers? Why should our life be in any respect provincial? If we will read newspapers, why not skip the gossip of Boston and take the best newspapers in the world at once? Not be sucking the pap of neutral family papers or browsing olive branches here in New England. Let the reports of all learned societies come to us, and we will see if they know anything. Why should we leave it to Harper and Brothers and Redding and Company to select our reading? As the nobleman of cultivated taste surrounds himself with whatever con- conduces to his culture, genius, learning, wit, books, painting, statuary, music, philosophical instruments, and the like, so let the village do. Not stop short at a pedagogue, a parson, a sexton, a parish library, and three selectmen's, because our pilgrim forefathers got through a cold winter once on a bleak rock with these. To act collectively is according to the spirit of our institutions, and I am confident that, as our circumstances are more flourishing, our means are greater than the noblemen's. New England can hire all the wise men in the world to come and teach her, and board them round the while, 
and not be provincial at all. That is the uncommon school we want. Instead of noblemen, let us have noble villages of men. If it is necessary, omit one bridge over the river, go round a little there, and throw one arch at least over the darker gulf of ignorance which surrounds us. Hello, hello. So this is one of my favorite chapters. Um, oh my God, how much I love this. Um, because I love the, just the, the concept of, you know, instead of including footnotes or instead of um, him really like providing a bibliography at the end and sort of saying like, these are all the books that I've read, which have, you know, brought me to where I am. Um, he's kind of using all of these things to name drop a little bit and to help us get the perspective that he has. Um, cause he has, Thoreau has this long, like he's, <clears throat> he's always looking at the big picture and especially now he, like this whole chapter, I feel like he, he spends, um, you know, just talking about ancient Greek and Latin and personally, like when I was a kid and I would visit Walden and I knew about Thoreau and before I even read Walden seriously, somehow <clears throat> I had learned that he, um, had studied Latin and Greek, um, at Harvard. And so when I was in high school, I actually, um, they offered Latin and I was like, yes, of course I want to, I want to be just like Thoreau. I, I wanted to be a writer and I knew I was a little bit of a book nerd already. Um, and for all of you out there, um, it's not going to turn you into Thoreau. It is going to make you just more aware of words and structure and grammar. Um, I will also admit that I um, had a um, an excellent starting point. My mother's Portuguese, um, and she passed away a little while ago, um, and I'm continuing to learn Portuguese, and frankly, even as a full-grown grown-up, I have not completely mastered the language. Um, but I feel like it's a very odd thing that Americans do not have more um, access to a second language or people don't brag about it more. Um, I'm always impressed by immigrants who, you know, will casually say that they know five languages or whatever. It's like it's something they grew up with. Um, my mother knew English, Portuguese. Um, she could get by in Spanish and French um, and even Italian, I think, if she had to. And, you know, also just the idea that, that you are exponentially increasing the, the number of friends and the number of um, books that you have access to by the more languages you speak or the more languages you understand. Um, it's language learning, I feel like, is one of those pieces of brain development. And if you have kids, please try to get them to be exposed to language, preferably like a native speaker. Um, as young as possible. Um, I've heard that you can do it up until age eight or up until puberty and that it, whatever it is, it just sinks into that um, amazing part of the brain that works on syntax. Um, when, So I will also confess right here that I actually went into linguistics for a while. Um, I spent two years in a degree program before I escaped because I realized that I was going to be making even less money than if I had stayed in theater and, you know, um, <laughs> which is kind of hard to do, but, uh, and God bless all my friends who are academics, um, because it is a very hard profession and very competitive. And, um, for me, it also ruined reading for a little while. 
But to get back to Noam Chomsky and how he talks about language development, he essentially believes that we're all born with the the hardware and the wetware um, to be able to speak any language and that all we need is the data, the input um, from whatever language. We just need to hear it. And which is essentially that's, that is how babies learn language. They just learn enough examples of it. Um, they don't have to be like sat down and taught the structure of syntax or grammar or, you know, they don't have to like read a dictionary before they understand these words. It's just a matter of hearing all of these data inputs. Um, so I think it's really interesting when Thoreau is writing, um, I feel like he, like he's aware that there's a farmer who grew up in Canada and his native language is French and Thoreau's um, family is actually French. His last name was, um, I think his, his grandfather um, was a native speaker of French and probably pronounced his last name Tucho, um as sort of a French take on, uh, you know, or like Thoreau is the, is the English take on the original French word. Um, and, but he's, you know, he's, he's aware that there are immigrants or people who speak other languages around him. But again, in America, that's not the, how can I put this, the goal, or it's not what people would be um, reaching for to speak as many languages as possible. Um, and I think that it's very, you know, and, and this is something where America is more, um, or has traditionally been more about assimilation and everybody sort of trying to reach for the quote-unquote norm um, of just speaking English without an accent, um, which I sadly I still feel is like happens today. Um, and it takes out a lot of the, the depth of understanding of, you know, not just other cultures, but just other people. Um, and this whole chapter is about Thoreau just talking about how we should have education and we should have access to books. Um, you know, he starts with this sort of specific, um, you know, allusion to Egyptian or Hindu philosophers raising the corner of the veil from the statue of the divinity. Um, and like, you know, the, the goddess Isis, um, like that's a, that's a thing where you're, you're peeking into ancient wisdom. Um, and, you know, he's, he's constantly reaching back towards that. And I think this is also where he's feeling a little bit, um, you know, like, like people talk about his isolation in the cabin. I feel like he feels a little bit more isolated, um, because he's not maybe in that, um, collegial environment where, you know, he's, he was a student at Harvard, everybody's learning all the time and that's just what they do. I feel like he here he you know he he shows this very democratic very like um worker oriented approach to how you should learn um cuz he doesn't really want like to be locked away you know like a monk just reading he he sort of wants everybody and, th and this is where the chapter sort of ends up um he wants everybody to be to have access to this lyceum, because he talks about the money that he invests is the best money spent ever. Um, and I love that he sort of calls out the town of Concord. He's like, yeah, we just spent all this money. We wasted it building a town hall. 
Um, but really, what are we filling it with? Um, and that, I feel like that's just one of those echoes where it's like, he's kind of like, I shouldn't be the only one um, that is that has access to this ancient wisdom. It should be, you know, for everybody, which I, I totally love. Um, so, um, and I think it's, it's kind of funny that every so often he'll, um, um, right. And I have had this advantage in books to be intoxicated by a single glass of wine. I've experienced this pleasure when I have drunk the liquor of the esoteric doctrines. Um, Thoreau talks about keeping Homer's Iliad on his table through the summer. Though I looked at a page only now and then. Incessant labor with my hands at first, for I had my house to finish and beans to hoe at the same time, made more study impossible. Um, he is, he's, you know, um, when I'm when I'm looking at this, and and he says it in one of the um, one of the early paragraphs, that you know, things haven't been translated into English. Um, which is something that I certainly have taken for granted, especially even when I was a you know a student of Latin and ancient Greek. There are many translations that you can, um, like not not necessarily cheat with, but like that you can compare because you like you're you're wrestling with your own translations for homework, and then you can go to um, those who have translated. Um, you know, these major works and actually usually they're poets themselves. And the, the skill of the translator is not necessarily to do a direct, like meaning to meaning translation, but to, to capture the, the deeper elegance of the original text, um, which is beautiful and is a whole study in and of itself. Um, and I think that he also likes the whole idea that you have to work for it as well. Um, you know, he refers to, I read one or two shallow books of travel in the intervals of my work till that employment made me ashamed of myself. And I asked where it was then that I lived. Um, I think that he's sort of like, yes, you can travel the world in a book. <coughs> but let's let's go ba- get back to Concord. So, for instance, I have a lovely new translation of the Odyssey by Homer um, sitting on my shelf right here, translated by Emily Wilson, um, which is just, it's it's outstanding. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, The heroic books, even if printed in the character of our mother tongue, will always be in a language dead to degenerate times. And we must laboriously seek the meaning of each word and line, conjecturing a larger sense than common use permits, out of what wisdom and valor and generosity we have. The modern cheap and fertile press, with all its translations, has done little to bring us nearer to the heroic writers of antiquity. They seem as solitary in the letter, which they are printed as rare and curious as ever. Um, it's worth the expense of youthful days and costly hours if you learn only some words of the ancient language, which are raised out of a trivialness of the street to be perpetual suggestions and provocations. Um, it is not in vain that the farmer remembers and repeats the few Latin words which he has heard. That line I don't quite understand. Like, do farmers talk about the the Latin names of the crops that they're growing? Like, how would the farmers come across um, Latin um, cause that, cause he's sort of, he's sort of talking about, 
yes, granted the mother language of these great works, um, it's totally obscure and you're not going to learn it. Um, the modern books that get printed, they don't really pay much attention to it, except probably like school books for kids or for, uh, colleges. Um, but you know, like I, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know how many translations exist now, but it's, um, it's plentiful. And I feel like (laughs) of all the things that Thoreau would envy about our modern age, he would probably, um, like at first just love the idea of being able to read all these modern translations, but then there's a part of him. And I feel like any translator, any person who has learned a language, um, you know, where you, you want to be able to argue with the translator that you're reading and you scoff a little bit and you're like, oh, that's a bad, that's a, that's a, that's not elegant enough. That's, that's a weird turn of phrase. Or you can discover something and be like, wait a minute, I had never thought that that line could be translated like that. And you love that there's something that's super familiar that has kind of a new light cast on it. Uh, which is also kind of why I'm reading Walden, because I feel like this is super familiar. But at the same time, um, (laughs) I hear myself talking and I feel like I'm making discoveries about what I know um, myself all the time about stuff that I know and stuff that I don't know. Um, What are the classics but the noblest recorded thoughts of man? They are the only oracles which are not decayed. Um, And there are such answers as the most modern inquiry in them as Delphi and Dodona never gave. Um, I, when I was in college, I did go on a tour of ancient Greece and the islands of Greece as well. I went to Delphi. I saw the, or or I didn't see the Oracle of Delphi, but I saw the, um, the, the place where the Oracle was. And so when he's talking about travel books, um, and he's talking about like all of the stuff, the, um, the decay of the Oracles, um, the main thing I remember about that trip, like, was just rocks. It, you know, it's just rocks. <laughs> you go to places wanting, um, you know, like, like there were, there were still lots of amazing things in, in Athens and, um, and actually we went over to Turkey and they actually kept their, um, ancient structures, um, in much better shape. Um, but there were many places where, you know, things just fell into ruin. Uh, you know, including the Acropolis, which I think was actually only accidentally blown up like a century or two ago, which is a whole other story. Um, but yeah, it, it, that, that wouldn't have been a ruin, except they thought that they, it was a good idea to store gunpowder at the Acropolis. Anyway, whatever. Um, but yes, when he's talking about words, um, it's really amazing that we have something as direct as words. Um, I love his line, like, (laughs) when it's like, yeah, like, just because something's old doesn't mean you shouldn't study it. We might as well admit to study nature because she's old, you know. Um, It's, it's, you know, to read well, that is to read true books in a true spirit is a noble exercise and one that will task the reader more than any exercise, which the custom of the day esteem. It requires a training such as athletes underwent, steady intention almost of the whole life to this object. Um, books must be read as deliberately and reservedly as they were written. It's not even enough to be able to speak the language of that nation by which they were written, for there is a memorable interval between the spoken and the written language, the language heard and the language read. Um, and for all of you who might be reading along in, in Walden, um, you know, I think that he's, he's trying to capture the, maybe the voice in your head, um, when you're reading along. Um, but there's also like the idea of the, 
hearing something only or listening or, or um, reading it only, like just different modes. Um, the one is commonly transitory, a sound, a tongue, a dialect, merely almost brutish. We learn it unconsciously like the brutes of our mothers. The other is the maturity and experience of that reading. If that is our mother tongue, this is our father tongue, a reserved and select expression too significant to be heard by the ear, which must we must be born again in order to speak. Um, I have lots of friends who will have an audiobook, you know, with the book in front of them or just have the audiobook and then go back. Um, it's all like, you know, people are multimodal learners. Um, and I love that he's, he's like, this is probably one of the few times when he's calling out the two different modes or like anybody's calling them out. Um, I think when you're a translator, you have to be tested in, um, in like understanding and speaking the the auditory piece of it and then also like the reading and the writing of the auditory piece um and to be able to break all of that down like you're not just you're not just like learning language you know it's not just this like one thing that you have to do you're you're using all of these different muscles and I love that he talks about it as like being a an athlete um <laughs> and he complains about the people in the middle ages uh, the crowds of men who merely spoke the Greek and Latin tongues of the Middle Ages were not entitled by accident of birth to read the works of genius written in those languages. Uh, for these were not written in the Greek or Latin, which they knew, but in a select language of literature. Um, I think he's sort of talking about like church Latin. Um, there's also uh, like a lot of languages that are, um, I th- and I think like this is, this is the, the Latin that I learned in class um, in high school, which is this kind of a frozen language. Um, they're doing their best to keep it frozen, but yet they also want to be able when like my, my Latin teacher was a nun and she sat us down on the first day of class and she's like, here are 10 reasons why it's good to learn Latin. And among them were like, you know, if you go on to law school, you'll understand the roots of different words. And if you're a writer, like that'll, that'll also, or medicine, med, you know, if you go into medicine, it's also like, you'll, you'll be able to decipher a long word more easily because you'll be able to analyze the roots, which I think honestly is probably one of the best reasons to learn Latin. Um, but when Thoreau was talking about all of this, he's also talking about like a, a language that doesn't change or evolve, like like English is constantly, especially with the internet, constantly evolving, constantly having new words, having old words used in new ways and the syntax changes. And, you know, all, like there are all these other languages that get built up around it, like the pidgin languages or the encounter languages. Pidgin is actually like a technical term used in linguistics. Um, and it's like, how do, how do people communicate using like the most bare form of a language? And how do languages sort of mash up against each other? So when it comes to church Latin, when it comes to like the Latin that they spoke in the Middle Ages, it was this very artificial form. It's sort of like, what is it? Um, uh, Tolkien created a language and these languages kind of like can exist in their own, um, <laughs> you know, like on a shelf or like in their own like glass enclosure because it's very rare for um any evolution to be kind of allowed in, um, even though like as soon as people actually start using it, like it does, um, it, things do evolve. 
And if you get into language, like, which I highly recommend, like even just as a hobby, even just as a, um, as a way to always be aware of the depth of communication and meaning, um, you know, like, I'm sure you took a Spanish class in high school or whatever, you know, like, like always take a foreign language, always, always try because it's using a certain part of your brain and it's always amazing and language and, and frankly, cause language is just the way that humans communicate and it's easier to sort of keep it a little bit more quote unquote pristine if you're keeping it on a page. Um, but when people are actually, talking, um, it kind of goes crazy and it goes in like whatever direction it wants. Um, (laughs) and so he's doing a little bit of like, um, you know, language history, uh, when the several nations of Europe had acquired distinct, though rude written languages of their own sufficient for the purposes of their rising literature, then first learning revived and scholars were able to enable to discern from that remoteness, the treasures of antiquity. When the Roman and Grecian multitude could not hear, after the last lapse of ages, a few scholars read, and a few scholars only are still reading it. Um, let me also mention the name Jones Very, who was um, Thoreau's Greek tutor at uh, Harvard. Um, look him up. He's one of the circle of transcendentalists. He's actually one of the more interesting characters. And sadly, it's not because of his writings. He was a poet. His poems are interesting. Um, or his poems are fine. (laughs) His poems are something to look at. Um, of all of the characters in the transcendentalist circles, I often find that their life stories, their biographies are a little more interesting. Um, Jones Very himself was a man of great promise and at some point he actually had some kind of mental break. Um, and I don't know, we can't really go back and diagnose something. It kind of sounds like something maybe bipolar, um, manic depressive, um, because I feel like he had moments of really great elation. Um, and he actually went around, um, he went to Elizabeth Peabody, um, and tried to uh, like anoint her because he said that he was the um, next coming of Christ. So if you get a chance to just even like look him up on Wikipedia, Jones Very, um, which is an, which is an odd name anyway. Um, and there are pictures of him and he looks very like dour. Um, he ended up having uh, like a long life, um, but it was one that was, you know, after, after this break, his family kind of took care of him. Um, and they were able to calm him. I like, I don't think that he was violent, but I definitely think that there was a major difference between when he was living very functionally, working at Harvard, um, working at a very high intellectual level. Um, and then what happened, you know, during his, and during and after, um, you know, him going around with this very weird form of enlightenment, And I don't want to get into religion because, you know, who says that he wasn't um, feeling enlightened and a lot of artists and poets and whatever, you know, would love to have that emotion or delusion or new understanding of the universe. Um, I think there's a play in there, of course. I think there is a a novel to be written or um, something. It's it 
um, I, I'm, or I also um, run a group on Facebook called Transcendentalists 2021. And I don't really talk about it on this podcast, but I really should because um, everything is related. And um, in during the month of May, which is when I'm recording this, of 2021, um, we were discussing disability and what it's like to explore disability in the 19th century, um, what that was like. And it was a really dark topic. And I think it... it was really difficult to discuss. And there were a lot of things that I had wanted to mention, um, but that I, I myself couldn't, you know, get around to, because especially when it comes to asylums and prisons, and even Margaret Fuller um, went and investigated um, women's prisons and, you know, did a lot of writing for Horace Greeley, the the newspaper guy, um, sort of as a, you know, insider viewpoint of like how horrible everybody was being treated. Um, and so like, that's a whole other thing. Um, but I, you know, and, and Jones very was, was the, was the transcendentalist that I had chosen for this month. Again, like his poetry, you know, I can take it or leave it. I think that some of his poems, um, are actually very dark and kind of interesting when they're read in the context of his, um, of his mental health. Um, so, and I think this had, I, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure actually where this is in context of, um, of Henry writing all of this. And I don't think Henry actually mentions Jones very directly, um, definitely not in Walden, but he might mention him in the journals. Um, but just, just so you also know, like all of this, you know, the, the Greek stuff is heavily informed by, Jones Very, who was able to, while he was, while he was Henry's Greek tutor, at least, um, to pass on, um, probably a lot of these ideas. Um, cause it's really hard to get into a full language and teach it to someone, um, without turning into, um, deeper philosophy. Um, again, so he mentions, um, However much we may admire the orator's occasional bursts of eloquence, the noblest written words are commonly as far behind or above the fleeting spoken language as the firmament with its stars is behind the clouds. There are the stars and there who they, they, and they who can may read them. Um, like agreed. This is like the whole idea of, um, of understanding and getting to this level of knowledge. Um, like it's, it's, it's honestly not hyperbole. (laughs) Like there are plenty of times when, when Thoreau wants to exaggerate for effect. And I feel like this is actually a great way to capture, um, the influence of language. Um, no wonder that Alexander carried the Iliad with him in his expeditions in a precious casket. Written word is the choicest of relics. Um, it's something at once more intimate with us and more universal than any other work of art. It is the work of art nearest to life itself. It may be translated into every language and not only be read, but actually breathed from all human lips, not be represented on canvas or marble only, but to be carved out of the breath of life itself. The symbol of an ancient man's thought becomes a modern man's speech. And literally, as I'm reading this, I'm kind of like, Henry, like you're in the background. And yes, I'm reading this. And hopefully I'm reading it to people who will also read it and turn it into the breath of life. Um, And that is also a really cool 
intimate, amazing experience because, yeah, you look at a marble statue or, yeah, you look at a painting, but literature, like, you experience, like, you you can speak these words and it can hit you. Um, he's like, 2,000 summers have passed since the, the, the you know, it's like, um, how do you really, how do you really measure time? And I love that he chooses summers and not winters. Um, books are the treasured wealth of the world and the fit inheritance of generations and nations. Um, like I'm, I'm a book nerd, frankly, I, I can never have enough books, books on the shelves around me, make me feel happy. Um, I feel weird when I walk into a house that doesn't have books. Um, when I walk in, when I meet a new friend and I walk into their house and I see that they have books, it, it reassures me. Um, it's, uh, and, and I, I love at the end, it's like, you know, when the illiterate and perhaps scornful trader has earned by enterprise and industry his coveted leisure and independence and admit, is admitted to the circles of wealth and fashion, he turns inevitably at last to those still higher but yet inaccessible circles of intellect and genius. Um, and this actually reminds me of somebody who had bought his way into office a little bit, um, you know, where, and or maybe it doesn't remind me of him, Um at one point, and hopefully, you know, Henry's talking about the, 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 you know, like really how much can wealth buy you? Um, you know, cause you can be illiterate and then you buy all this stuff. Um, but eventually, or there's this idea, at least in America that, you know, you can be rich, but it's also important to be rich and wise. So, you know, like, and, you know, rich people like to socialize with, you know, people at the Met Museum or other museums, or they like to associate themselves with intellectuals. Um, and intellectuals, like, we don't really have intellectuals in the way that they sort of existed in the 50s and 60s, just public intellectuals who go around critiquing and complaining and, you know, like Fran Lebowitz or, or whatever is a is a great example. She has a show on HBO and she's like, I think it's called, um, you know, imagine it's a city. Imagine that the city you're, you're standing in is actually a city. Um, anyway, so it's like, it's like, this is, um, if you're going to become a, a founder of a family, you need to do it through intellect. And it's not, it's not a matter of inheriting wealth, um, which is, you know, not how it is in America, but whatever. Uh, it, it's, it's, and again, like I'm a book person. I, I believe that I'm the sum total, um, not of what my, I have inherited monetarily from my parents, but of what they have taught me. Um, and then they're, they are the sum total of what they had learned, um, from their parents and their lives experience. Those who have not learned to read the ancient classics in the language in which they were written must have a very imperfect knowledge of the history of the human race, for it is remarkable that no transcript of them has ever been made into any modern tongue. Um, so this is where he's like, there are no translations. Oh, my God. Um, Homer's never been printed in English, nor Aeschylus, nor Virgil. Um, so he would totally love it. Um, that age will be rich indeed when those relics, which we call classics, and the still older and more than classics, but even left known scriptures of the nations will have still f f further accumulated 
when the Vatican shall be filled with Vedas and Zendavestas and Bibles, Homer's and Dante's and Shakespeare's. Um, so when he's talking about that, and anytime he mentions the Hebrew scriptures, he um, was actually the first American, I believe, to be sent a whole set of Hebrew scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita, and I think others. Um, he had a friend in England who sent him the set. So, you know, he, um, and I believe that he didn't, um, I don't think that he could translate them, but Elizabeth Peabody, um, who I've mentioned before, um, she is, I mentioned her in, in um, context of Jonesbury. Uh, she actually ran a bookshop in Boston, and that's where Margaret Fuller had held her conversations with women. Um, and she was actually Sophia Hawthorne's sister, um, Sophia Peabody Hawthorne, um, who married Nathaniel. Um, and then she was also the sister um, who, she also had another sister who married Horace Mann. Um, so like Elizabeth Peabody is kind of at the center of everything. She also, she taught at um, Bronson Alcott's um, school in Boston, um, one of the first schools to be um, not only, um, uh, to, to, oh, sorry, to be fully integrated. Um, ben, uh, <laughs> he, and like, he's a whole other topic. Um, but, you know, when the kids asked him like where babies come, came from, he would tell them. And, you know, the parents didn't like that. Um, but the parents actually pulled kids out of school when he um, brought in, um, a, I think, a little um, a, a girl, an African-American girl. And he brought in several and um, his school closed kind of soon after that. Um, but Elizabeth Peabody is yet another figure that you should look up um, or go to Transcendentalist 2021 on Facebook, um, where we explore this on a regular basis. Um, I find that Facebook is one of those great places to sort of say, hey, here's a random thread about yesterday. We had something about like Emerson's brother and he was born and he might be called mentally challenged or whatever. Um, and, you know, anyway, so like there's there was a whole thread about um, about him and how he appears in Thoreau's um, journal. And um, it's a great way. So like. I always wonder what Thoreau would think of social media. Um, and I think that a lot of the way that we use it, where it's just this endless scroll and we're totally addicted to it. Yeah, that part he would hate. That part he would he would be like, yeah, the, the telegram or the telegraph when that gets invented. Like, what does Maine actually have to say to Texas? Because there's, there's nothing good. Um, but I feel like things like, like Facebook, you can, you can sometimes have... Like I always post articles. So I'm kind of like, here's a starting point. What do you guys feel about it? And then everybody will bring in like a new thing like, oh, well, there's a book about it and there's this. And then did you think about this other person? And so I feel like it's a great way to um, do something asynchronously and sort of have a conversation, um, which is really amazing, especially in the age of COVID. Um, another thing that I do is called Conquered Days on YouTube. It's a series of, and it's just like, I don't even want to call it interviews. It's just a series of conversations um, with authors and museum people um, where again, it's like, let's, let's just do a zoom meeting and tape it and just have a conversation about Hawthorne or about um, doing walking tours or whatever. Um, again, as, as you can tell, 
I love to uh, to bring in um, as much as possible. I, I really hate to edit and I really hate to cut stuff out. So thank you all for bearing with me because I, I, as I go on again, another tangent. Um, let me skip down. Um, uh, all right. I think that having learned our letters, we should read the best that is in literature and not be forever repeating our A, B, A, Bs. Um, he's sort of, I love that he's like dishing a little bit. He's kind of like, don't read crap. Don't read terrible stuff. Um, there's a work in several volumes in our circulating library entitled Little Reading. Um, and he really thought it was like Little Reading because he, and he's trying to make a pun there. Um, you know, and he's like, really, why do you waste your time? And I think also he, so he and Hawthorne, who I've mentioned, um, are two completely different writers. They got along really well as friends. Um, Henry gave him or, or sold him a, a boat that he had crafted, that he had um, taken with his brother. And that's was the basis of a week on the Concord and Merrimack rivers. He sells it to Hawthorne and Hawthorne writes about it. And Hawthorne's completely puzzled because Henry can control this boat and Hawthorne just has no clue. Um, so that kind of describes like their friendship. Henry's completely at ease in nature and Hawthorne's like afraid of it. <laughs> and Henry just keeps talking about nature and Hawthorne has to um, put in all sorts of extra meaning and morality. And he has this sense that there's so much evil in the world. Um, and he grew up in Salem and his great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, something like that, was um, actually a judge in the Salem Witch Trials. So he has the sense of like doom kind of being inherited. Um, and so I kind of love it. Because, and I, I, wonder, I wonder if they ever actually discussed um, this page that, that Thoreau was talking about, because he's like, He's like, really? You have to read all this like crap and it has plots and, and your eyes are like saucers because you have to know what's going on because somebody does something really stupid like climbing to the top of a steeple. And how is he ever going to get down? Um, and I think that he's he's kind of making fun of it. And um, which, you know, like that's Henry. Like, he's, I, I totally love that. Uh, the best books are not read even by those who are called good readers. What does our conquered culture amount to? There is a town with very good exceptions, no taste for the best of very good books, even in English literature, whose words they can all read and spell. Um, and he talks about the woodchopper. And, and one of my favorite lines of his is, uh, you know, like, what's the difference about being illiterate? And actually, I think Mark Twain... Um, oh, actually... Oh, wait. So here, here is a quote that I've actually heard Mark Twain say. So maybe he encountered it here in Thoreau, um, or frankly, I think Thoreau probably got it from Emerson, or um, I haven't seen it before Thoreau, but I'm going to actually investigate it. Um, so this is like a ne the next page or so. Uh, We're underbred, low-lived, and illiterate. In this respect, I confess I do not make any very broad distinction between the illiterateness of my townsmen who cannot read at all and the illiter illiterateness of him who has learned to read only what is for children and feeble intellects. Um, I think the Mark Twain quote is much pithier, and it's kind of like, there's no difference if you don't know how to read, and if you do know how to read, and you're not reading good books. Um, it goes something like that. 
Um, but I always feel like it's really interesting to sort of to to track how people are interested um, or ide- how ideas sort of travel from one, one person to another. As Thoreau is saying right here, um, this ancient wisdom. Um, and so, so I'm saying that that quote, I think, is probably... It probably didn't originate with Thoreau because I can imagine there were more illiterate people back then. And I can kind of imagine that that was kind of more of a thing <laughs> that people said. Um, you know, I, and I don't think that his, uh, his quote here is like pithy enough for a, uh, you know, a bumper sticker. Um, and I think the Twain quote has probably been massaged as well. Um, and frankly, I like knowing people who work in the bookshop, I feel like there are lots of things that are, you know, quote unquote, quotable quotes that get, um, attached to certain people because it's something that they might've said or they said something close enough to it that they can be identified with it. Um, anyway, so I think that it's, um, that's another, that's another thing about reading. Cause if you, if you're really familiar with books, you can actually go and, um, and track it down. And, um, I do think that sometimes Thoreau is really good and pithy and that quote, the illiterateness of him, et cetera, et cetera. I, like that's, um, it's not easy to read <laughs> and it's not like, um, it's not tight as I would say as a, as a fellow writer. Um, and then he, but he is known for this. It is not all books that are as dull as their readers. Um, you know, how many a man has dated a new era in his life from the reading of a book. Um, the book exists for us perchance, which will explain our miracles and reveal new ones. The at present unutterable things we may find somewhere uttered. Um, Again, like, I don't think that that's so elegant, but I, I love the concept. Um, stuff that, that humans can't put into words, it's, some, it's probably found in a book. Um, he mentions, he mentions, what is it? Z- yeah, Zoroaster. Thousands of years ago, traveled the same road, had the same experience, but he, being wise, knew it was universal. Treated his neighbors accordingly. It's even said to have invented and established worship among men. Um I think that it does take a highly experienced intellect. And the more you read, the more you can experience vicariously and sort of like level up your own life by the more books that you read. Um, I was literally in a situation in a meeting um, where somebody kept talking about how their ego was being hurt and they were so offended um, by a thing but it was the conversation that actually, like there were so many other levels happening in the conversation that because they were all taken up with the ego piece of it, um, they missed like two or three other things that were happening um, or they had lowered them in reading the room. And I feel like when the more books you read, the more you can, you know, not, not that you're going to be Sherlock Holmes, not that you're going to be like Hercule Poirot. Uh, Agatha Christie, whatever. But I feel like the more you understand other people's motivations um, and the dynamics of humans, um, I think you can go much easier from the, oh my God, I can't believe this thing happened to me to, oh my God, this thing happens all the time. And then it happened to me. 
let me find how other people have dealt with it. Let me find other books. Um, I would say that like I'm going through grief right now. And for some reason, I can't stop reading books about grief. And like I, I had this craving to hear other people's stories about it. Um, because it's very easy to get all wrapped up in like the details of your own circumstance, which yes, I agree. And, and that's part of grief actually. Um, but it's also amazing that we have books that can be so direct and honest to provide um, insight into what's going on. Um, so again, it's like walking down the same road, had the same experience, um, and that writer knew that it was universal and not just this um, thing where you can get lost in your own ego. Um, <laughs> and I love that he's like, we boast that we belong to the 19th century and we're making the most rapid strides of any nation. Like that sounds so familiar in the 21st century. Um, consider how little this village does for its own culture. I don't wish to flatter my townsmen or be flattered by them. Uh, that won't advance either of us. We need to be provoked, goaded like oxen as we are to a trot. Um, right, like schools are great. Um, and we spend more on almost any article of bodily ailment or ailment than on our mental ailment. Um, it's time we had uncommon schools that would not leave our, off our education when we began to be men and women. Um, this is what he's talking about. Shall the world be confined to only one Paris or one Oxford forever? Cannot students be boarded here and get a liberal education under the skies of Concord? Um, so he's proposing um, something which I feel like is kind of happening in Concord now. Um, where people are attracted to it. And I think this happens also maybe more in university towns and whatever. Um, but people do, there are certain kinds of people, um, probably nerds and bookworms and, and people who just love going to lectures because um, Concord Museum has lectures and Thoreau Farm has lectures and the Thoreau Society has gatherings. And um, like there are ways that people come to Concord um, to keep learning. And it's it's partly because... Um, there's the Orchard House with Louise Mayalcutt and, and the Emerson House and everything is in such a, um, a compact area of just a few, what is it, like seven square miles or something. Um, and the center of Concord is like, it's like a college campus, you know, where you, you can literally just walk from museum to museum. Um, and it's really amazing. Um I have a friend who's trying to propose um, that there should be a retreat center in the middle of Concord um, for scholars who should be able to come and study and lecture. And, you know, people should just be able to live there because it does feel like a vortex at times of really amazing stuff. Um, and I love that Thoreau is saying like, yes, absolutely. Like um, it's, you know, it is thought utopian to propose spending money for things which are more which more intelligent men know to be of far more worth. This town has spent seventeen thousand dollars on a townhouse. Think fortune or politics, but probably will not spend so much on living wit. The true meat to put into that shell in a hundred years. Um, and this was published eighteen fifty four, so nineteen fifty four and another hundred years, whatever. Um, talking about the Lyceum. Um, and so within, you know, Concord, I feel like, like, this is why it's so great to 
either live close to Concord or to just be on even the email lists of all the Concord museums and um, all the different places. Because the Decordova, it's an art museum. It's in Lincoln. Um, there's the Gropius House, which is an architectural um, beautiful wonder, which is also like a mile away from Walden. Um, all of these places, like you don't have to actually physically be there, but they there is like this thriving thing where it feels like there's you know, multiple lectures happening every single week. Um, so I think that, you know, at some point he would, he would be happy if he were able to live in Concord now, um, at least with this piece of it. Um, as the nobleman of cultivated taste surrounds himself with whatever con- conduces to his culture, genius, learning, wit, books, painting, statuary, music, philosophical instruments and the like, to, so let the village do. Not stop short at a pedagogue, a purse, a parson, a sexton, a parish library, and three selectmen. Um, also, if you go into the Emerson House, um, Emerson has a library. And um, so Transcendentalist 2021, we have a book group. And we were just talking about, like, how little the library feels. Like, it's just two walls of books because there weren't that many books being printed. Um, you know, Henry had to have his first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. He had to pay for it. He had to self-publish. Um, and even then, <laughs> did not sell. Um, and even Walden didn't do that well. Um, and I always, you know, it's, it's when you talk about, like, investments or stocks or whatever, like, it would have been so much better to invest in a first edition of A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers or Walden. Because um, they're worth a lot. I mean, not that they're worth a fortune. And Again, I would be a terrible speculator because I would buy it and then never sell it. Um, anyway, thank you very much. Go read. Go pick up a book. Um, it doesn't have to be Thoreau, but just, just keep reading and learn a language if you can. Um, thank you for listening to my rambles. Um, and I will, uh, I'll see you at the next episode. Bye. Bye.